from Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. The films we saw were taken by an amateur photographer who had a particularly good vantage point just past just the building past from which the fatal shot was fired. Greetings, folks. Michael Rosso here, Film Photography Podcast. Uh, today, here for a uh, special edition broadcast, and I'm here with Leslie Lazenby. Hello, everyone. Matt Mirage. Hey, hey, hey. And Owen McCafferty. Hello. And what is the title of this special presentation? I titled it Fate on Film. Yes. Short but sweet. Yes. Well, I'm going to keep everything very secret, and I'm going to just turn it over to Leslie Lazenby. It's very special, very timely for the date that we're airing this. And uh, take it away, Leslie. Great. My little group here, or maybe all of our listeners, if I were to ask you what has been the most important film or video in film's history, what would you say? Many would debate, but clearly it is the most viewed and analyzed film out there. Would you say maybe it's footage from Vietnam? Hmm. Here's a good one, the Hindenburg. Oh, oh, the, oh Hindenburg. the Hindenburg was... Roswell? Oh, <laughs> excellent. There was uh, concentration camp videos that were shot after World War II, and yes? The moon. The moon? Yes. In the studio, or... Here's a big one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Here's a big one, kids. 9-11. Yeah. Yeah. Probably right up there, maybe right at the top, would be the Zabruder film. Now, for anyone who's not familiar with this film, it's the 26.5 seconds of 8mm movie film shot of the Kennedy assassination. And although he was an American president, the news hit worldwide because he was a world leader. Now, I want you to note that I'm going to use words like shoot, shooter, and shot and they both apply to the film and to the act of assassination. And there is no pun intended when I use these words. Also, I am not a Kennedy or as a Bruder film aficionado. I do not collect conspiracy theories. I will do my best to give information as I have found it in a much condensed form. The subject itself can and has filled volumes. There are a couple things that started me on this podcast segment journey. First, as I have mentioned in past podcasts, famous cameras and the people and the images Mm -hmm. that made them. Second, I attended an ECHO meeting. ECHO is Eagle Creek Historic Organization. They are a small but extremely active local historical group. And the speaker that night was Peter Pereno. He is a professor at Tiffin Ohio University in the criminal justice, the social science department, and a former Secret Service agent. His presentation discussed the assassination, emphasizing the evidence in the case, as well as conspiracy viewpoints, which of course included the evaluation and the importance of the Zabruder film. And it's it's interesting when you say Zabruder film today, People don't know. But if you say it's that film of the assassination of Kennedy, they know what it is. After his presentation, he allowed questions from the audience, and I shot my hand up. I had one that was plaguing me the whole time. I said, did Abraham Zabruder 
know what he had captured on film, or was it a surprise after he had the film developed? And I don't know about you, but sometimes you get your film back and you think, oh my gosh, look what's really going on here. Look at the background. Every once in a while that happens. And he had a very flat-out answer. Yes, he knew. Well, at that point, what I knew is that I knew very little. In my search for the camera, I came across a YouTube video interview of Zabruder's granddaughter, Alexandra Zabruder, and she had written a book called 26 Seconds, a personal history of the Zabruder film. Thus begun the tumbling down the rabbit hole. Alexandra covered not only conspiracy around the film, but also property rights, the trauma, and the tortured lives of Zabruder and his family. And it is truly, as it's titled, it is a personal history. First, just a little bit about the cameraman, Abraham Zabruder. He was born in Ukraine in 1905. This all fits together, you know. In his younger teen years, he experienced his brother being pulled off a train and murdered in front of family members, apparently by Polish guards. Not long after this, he and his family moved to the U.S. to escape the violence and the political unrest. In his adult life, he owned a dress manufacturing business called Jennifer Jr.'s. His offices were in the Daltex building, Dallas Textile building, across the street, beside, actually, not across, but beside, across the street, was the Texas School Book Depository building. He was an avid home movie maker and photographer. He knew Kennedy was coming to pass in front of the Daltex building, and he wanted to film it for his family. He wanted them to see the president and Mrs. Kennedy. He very much liked and respected Kennedy, and he was very excited to hear of his visit to Dallas. When the day came, he did not have his movie camera with him. Multiple reasons have been conjectured. One, it's been said that he forgot his camera that day. Or he just left it home as the forecast was overcast and rainy, not conducing to filming with an ISO 25 film or maybe even having the parade happen if it's raining. And it may have also been because he was short and he wasn't sure he could actually see over the crowd. Maybe it was a little of all three. Lillian Rogers was his secretary, and she knew him, and she sent him home to get it. The weather cleared up, and Marilyn Stitzman, his receptionist, went out with him to the street, where he found a concrete barrier to stand on, with Marilyn behind him to support him. And I almost envision this is like, you know, when you hold somebody's legs mm-hmm. and they're on a ladder? Marilyn back there with a good grip on his legs. These are the events so far that led up to him even filming that day. Now, obviously, he did get his camera, and he returned to work, where he shot the remaining A-side of that double-eight film that was in his camera, and he flipped it. If you know, double-eight film is actually 25 feet of 16-millimeter film that you expose on one side, and you flip it over, and you expose the other side, the side B. When processed, the lab would slit it in two and splice it together for 50 feet of final viewing pleasure, approximately three to four minutes of screen time. He wanted as much unexposed film available to him as possible. So that was going to be the completely unexposed B side. So he shot the A side kind of around in the plant to get it mm-hmm. done and uh, flipped it over. He's ready to go. He was filming on his Bell and Howe 414 PD camera. He had had this less than a year. He chose this model 
due to an excellent review in popular photography. And I'm thinking, today we go online and we get everyone's opinion, but how important those magazines were then. Mm -hmm. And the review said, it is undoubtedly one of the finest 8mm motion picture picture cameras ever seen. The Zoomatic is an 8mm camera that has been beautifully thought out and designed with clean and functioning lines. Now remember, Abraham was a clothing designer. He would have loved this description. And it came finished out. It came with a case that was black leather and smartly appointed with silver trim. This camera was offered as roll, 8mm, and as magazine. I have the magazine. And, you do. And, and it came with a pistol grip, an aluminum cast I have that. pistol grip. Yeah, I excellent. have that. I didn't think that it actually belonged to the camera, so mm-hmm. I pulled it out. This camera featured no batteries to die. It's a wind-up crank wind camera. It takes 35 revolutions for a full wind that gives you about 73 seconds of continuous recording, uses about 15 feet of your film. This is important, as he had to plan when to start the camera, knowing he only had about a minute of continuous recording time. There wasn't time to re-crank, mm-hmm. and there was no time to flip that film over, so he set everything up. This camera also has a button power zoom, so there's no reaching around, moving it back and forth, going wide first, and then going telly, that kind of thing. He had a button zoom on it, and that was especially helpful because... He knew he couldn't get close enough. It also has a dual electronic eye for automatic exposure control. And his past experience with this camera was that it was very accurate. So he had confidence in his equipment. The camera shot on the entire half of the film. Now when I say that, that is including the area around the sprocket holes. Some cameras shot only in the frame area Mm -hmm. and some extended in the sprocket holes. Mm -hmm. And was one more common than the other? Uh, no, it's about, no, it just depended where the camera was made and how they put that back plate in, in the camera. Yes, Matt. Is that a different designation when it goes across? The, is it called something when See, it I goes? thought it was, and then I couldn't find the reference later. Well, it's not because all film was projected in a projector, and the, the projector has there. a mask, oh, so it didn't okay. matter. Yeah, most consumers would have had no idea there right. was an image. Because okay. um, I'm seeing, like, in some of these motion, because now you got you guys got me interested in motion, I'm seeing ultra is that is yes. that different? Well, that's like Super 16. Super 16 and Ultra 16. Oh, okay, okay. Mm-hmm. His film choice for the day was the relatively new Kodachrome 2. Ooh, and this was introduced in uh, 1961. And I actually have with this camera a roll of unused Kodachrome 2 with the proper date on it. Do it's, not shoot it. Exp- <laughs> expiration, I think, Please. is 63, is it not? It expires in July of 1960-something. It features the new, faster ISO of Daylight 25. Yes! A- Super fast! ASA 25. And it was important to know that this film was the first major update since 1936. It was designed for amateurs. It had a lower contrast, thus having more detail in the shadows and the highlights. See, all this just plays into how, I won't say the success of it, but but the success of it. So it had, yes. And didn't K2 for shooting it indoors, didn't it bump it up to 40? Yes. Yeah, so that was, because that was super high for Mm -hmm. a movie film in those days. So it had a faster ISO, ASA as they would have called it at the time. Less grain than what was than what was available for, even when it was ten. 
and it had a thinner base to it so there was less light scatter so he's got his camera he has it loaded up he's down on ground level and he stood on the cement bar- uh, barrier and he began filming and he watched it all close up i think probably better than anyone else there mm. He was watching this, of course, through the camera's zoom lens. And after the assassination and the limo had sped off, he was heard yelling, they killed him. Before he could get back to his office, the first offer was made to him to buy the film from a local newspaper. He refused. He said he would not speak to anyone except federal authorities. It's not surprising that, uh, I think, almost instant. PTSD. Uh, when he got back to the office, he kind of lost it. He handed the camera to Lillian and he said, I've got it all on here. And he went in his office and he started banging and hitting equipment. Like I say, just the trauma of it. He first called his son, but his daughter-in-law answered the phone and she said, yes, she knew the president had been shot and he was being treated at Parkland hospital. And he insisted he is dead. He said, I know. He is dead. Remember, he saw this firsthand when it happened, and he saw it, the infamous frame, that was later identified as frame 313 through his zoom lens. Then his son calls him back, and he reiterated that the president was shot, and he was at Parkland, and he said, no, he is dead. He kept seeing how horrible it was for Mrs. Kennedy to have to experience this. How could this happen in America? While at the office, he was concerned about the film. He was resolved to get it into the right hands, the FBI or the Secret Service. And by this time, there's no security in these buildings. Um, By this time, reporters were aware that he had potential filming of the assassination. Why? The employees told them. They said, our boss got pictures of it. He has a movie camera. It was pandemonium, physically, with people constantly at him and the phones ringing off the hook. The Dallas Times-Herald tried to acquire the film and tried to get Zabruder to let them take the film for processing. But Zabruder would not leave it out of his hands. They encouraged him to come with the film and have it developed at the Times-Herald's photo department. The reporter said he was certain they would pay him for it. Then... The Dallas police arrived with shotguns in hand, and Zabruder locked the camera in a safe. It was, he was, naturally hysterical. Once again, he refused to hand off that film. All the while, more people coming in after him. Once the Secret Service showed up, they asked him, can we at least have a copy of this? Abraham agreed to give them a copy, and they began the task of getting it developed. The first attempt was the Dallas Morning News. They got there. Oh, this is color. Yeah, yeah. Kodachrome, no less. We can't do this. Call the Kodak Processing Lab. They are the only ones capable. Yet, WFAA-TV was contacted, and they said, what you have is not just film, but it's 8-millimeter movie film, and it's Kodachrome. Don't let anyone but an expert process this film. Dallas had a Kodachrome processing facility. Calls went to the lab. They were unanswered. (laughs) Kodak, as everyone, was in a state of shock, and they actually planned on closing the plant down for that afternoon for the rest of the day and sending everybody home. But as any 
buddy that's connected with Kodak, you've got inside phone numbers. And someone had an emergency number. I used to have one for the Finley plant. And the emergency number was called, and they reached a staff supervisor. First question, can you process this film? Yes. Second, we want you to shut down the machine and only process our film. We want no other films to run at the same time. Okay. How long will it take? Take one hour and 15 minutes. So this whole entourage headed to the Kodak lab with Abraham never letting the camera out of his grasp. They wound the remaining B-side up so they could take it out unexposed to get to the end of the film. And they handed it off to Karen Kirby, and she was in the special handling department. She stamp-coded it with its processing ID that forever identified this as the in-camera original. The pressure, I just think of these people handling this. It was then given to Bobby Davis at machine number two. Little Bobby Davis. Good old Bobby Davis and good old machine number two. After the heads-up call, before they arrived, processing number machine two had been cleaned and certified by the production foreman. The Secret Service stayed in the dark during the process with the film. Abraham watched through a limited visibility window at times, you know, you can see, and um, whenever he could, whenever possible. In the meantime, he called home, and people had found out his name, and the phone was, was there again, just off the hook. He contacted, I don't know, he had, had his wits about him, and he contacted an attorney who advised him to get affidavits to certify handling, processing, anyone who touched the film, any type and quantity of duplicates that were made. The offers didn't stop. The offers became higher. They became more aggressive. When the processing was complete, it was to be reviewed via a standard quality control method, which meant viewing it unslit in its 16 millimeter form on a Kodak inspection projector. That projector runs four times normal speed. Yes, side A and side B were viewed at the same time. Side B was the assassination, and it ran right side up. Side A ran upside down. <laughs> Images of his kids and his home life. And to have those both on the screen oh, at the God. same time, oh, so it's weird. like almost sacrilegious, you know? Right. It's just, it, just, it just can't be. It just, well, of course it was. And, of course, Abraham was in attendance because he did not leave this. The first view, there was Secret Service that was there, the Kodak employees, and... Even at four times, they were beyond shocked and actually sickened. He asked about getting the copies he made, because if you remember, the Secret Service wanted a copy, and he had promised one. They could not make in-house copies. Things like that were sent to Rochester. There you go. There's that flat out, no, not risking it. A suggestion was made to contact Jameson Film Company. Oh, they could do it, provided it was supplied in its 16-millimeter unslit form. I believe they only had three rolls available for duplication. So it was decided to make these copies with our bracketed exposure method. So one of their senior professionals did the work, and what they ended up with was an optimum exposed copy and one that was a slight bit, a notch over. A notch would not have been a full stop when you're probably bracketing chrome. Yeah. yeah, probably a third, yes. So they had one over and one under, and they were all very usable copies. So once the copies were exposed, 
back to Kodak, they went for the processing. Abraham stayed with the film the entire time during the exposure at Jameson's and the transportation back to be processed. More affidavits were signed by those people at Jameson and more back at the Kodak plant. They also, uh, obviously with one of the affidavits, they claimed there literally was three copies made. One important thing to note about the duplication process, it only duplicates the frame, mm. not the sprocket holes. Oh, the... Mm. Yes. And often when we see it today, we see the sprocket hole running and there's right. information in there as well. It was 9 p.m., and Abraham was returned to his car to drive home. It was just Abraham and his camera. And the, <laughs> and the original, and a copy, because he had given two copies to the uh, Secret Service. And, and I can imagine that it was audibly a very silent ride home. But his mind had to be exploding. I would have had the biggest headache. Two copies went to the Secret Service, and... The rest of him was right there on the seat beside him. I'm sure he thought that uh, this day was unreal, but I don't think he could have imagined just how much his life would change because of this. Now, some time ago, I was telling Mike about this. I'm going to tell you words escape me right now on what he said, but Mike asked me something to the effect of, do you think Zabruder had some kind of words escape these are not exactly it pride or maybe fame and having having shot this having done this i I get to use those little flat out no he felt a responsibility to protect it and not to capitalize on it and it was not a responsibility that he wanted he refused to sell it until the life magazine deal the next day he trusted and he respected life magazine he knew they had a special relationship with the kennedy family he could not imagine frame 313 in the wrong hands in his deep sympathy for jackie kennedy and her family he could not personally be responsible for them seeing this on public display before he sold it he showed the film to two secret service agents in his office on his home projector And they said it was literally like being gut-punched. And he could not imagine the family seeing this. He had nightmares about this for years, immediately and for years. And one that was a repeating dream for him was seeing the offers on Times Square from some sleazy theaters making money projecting it. His negotiations with life were not to exploit it and to treat it with respect. He sold life the print rights print rights only but the next day he sold them all of the rights which would have included the film itself the film itself one of life's conditions to the sale was that frame 313 was to be withheld from publication i think personally he could have used every dime of this money he made for his own personal therapy but his first check which was a sizable check he gave to the widow of officer tippett the dallas policeman that was shot and killed by oswald 45 minutes after the assassination and believe it or not he got hate letters from people that said you gave mrs tippett money and you didn't give the kennedys any <laughs> do you not know the kennedys and it's just this was just how out everybody was and he saved all that stuff there's boxes of these letters even though it, when people found out that he actually sold it these other places that were making offers they just went berserk they were screaming at him they were yelling at him it just added nothing more but trauma to it 
A week later, Life did publish a special edition, and they made 31 still prints, during which, I'm so glad I wasn't responsible for this, during which six frames were damaged on that original film in the process. And at the time, Life did not publicly disclose four frames were totally removed. Thus, the film has its own conspiracy theories. There are many. The handling of the film and its ownership, copyright, and court battles were just simply all part of this little... I just imagine this little 50-foot reel with only 25 Mm -hmm. feet in it. It's all part of its life. And Sorry, how many frames did you say were cut? Three hundred? Four frames. Four frames cut out. Which is not, Six I mean, frames damaged, four cut out. For anybody out there, it's who not thinks, even a blink of the right. eye. Yeah, whoever, anybody who thinks that there's like aliens in those frames, I have no, no idea where it was through there. <laughs> right, you know, if I mean, that's, not, that's not nothing. It's nothing. The first broadcast in its entirety to the U.S. was on March 6, 1975, on Goodnight America with who else? Geraldo Rivera. That was the first time it was broadcast. Set in 1975. Yes. But there were bootleg copies, and they were broadcast with a limited amount of viewers as early as 1970. The public was outraged, and this triggered more investigations. One investigation, or one suit in particular, was time. There was a settlement of royalty suit between them and the Zabruder heirs. Now, Abraham died in 1970. So he did not have to see all this stuff hit the small screen. How, how, do you know how old he was when he In died? his 60s. Okay. Uh, late 60s, I believe. It's young. You know what? It's you may young. have to look that up. But, oh, yeah, he wasn't like 80 or 90 years old. Okay. Yeah. So Time Life, which was Time Life at this, at this point now, sold the film's initial rendition and the copyright back to the Zabruder family for $1. But that did not stop the public from having access to it. Immediately, there were 35-millimeter slides made of each frame. There were 4 by 5 internigs made of the frames. There were all the prints that um, Life magazine made. You make a few test prints, you throw them in the trash, maybe no one pays attention, and somebody Somebody's sees, going through Time Life's trash. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not all copies could be located or even you know, controlled. In 1978, the Zabruder family transferred the film to the National Archives and Records Administration for appropriate preservation, good for them, and safekeeping. But Zabruder retained the ownership of the film and its copyrights. In 1992, former President George H.W. Bush signed into law President JFK Kennedy Assassination Records Collection Act sought to preserve all records and materials related to the assassination. The film was automatically uh, designated assassination material relating to the assassination. Therefore, it immediately became property of the U.S. government. Even even though it was in uh, private hands? Yes. Wow. Because he made that President JFK Assassination Records Collection Act that allowed them to take it. The Zabruder family demanded the return of the original film. They began this in 1992. This act went into being. They started in 93 and 1994 from the National Archives. Because the film is unique, its value is difficult to ascertain. And eventually, following arbitration, the Zabruder heirs, the government purchased the film in 1999 for $16 million to retain it. Holy this cow. did not include the film's copyright. 
Isn't this confusing? You can add the film, but you can't add the copyright. This is just mind-boggling of everything that went on legally with this film. So the family then donated this, meaning the copyright, the first-generation copy, and the prints made by life to the Sixth Floor Museum located in the Texas School Book Depository Building. The family no longer retains any commercial rights. This is my short and very incomplete commentary on the first few days in the current life of this film. But what about the camera? That's where I started. What about the camera? Well, it was taken. Oh, this is about cameras? Yeah, it was taken. And as I say, dissected. And you can read multiple papers of information on the camera's examination. Now, I have printed out nine pages, and it is amazing. They literally dissected this camera. But probably the most notable fact with this camera is it shot at 18.3 frames per second. Industry standard is 16 frames per second. That's why it seems so fast. That changes timelines. When they're literally looking at timelines, it changes everything. I believe this 18.3 frames was within Bell & House specs and really not considered a defect. And it's sometimes... Uh, it may be the reason why you say this film runs for 26.5 seconds or 26.6 seconds. Just like the Kennedy assassination, in which every second of that day is timelined, the events of Abraham Zabruder and his camera and film can also be timelined. Currently, the original camera is stored in the National Archives, and they sometimes put it out on display. Now, finding an exact model, a 414 PD, is not easy today because a lot of them were bought up. People put them in displays, wanted to have the same camera. But there is the 414P model, which looks very similar. They look alike. They can be had off eBay all the time. And as a final note regarding the camera, because I thought about this too, Bell and Howe sent Mr. Zabruder a replacement. Very nice. Very nice. Now... I'm sure the majority of you have seen this short film. You can, it's YouTube, it's everywhere. It's very, very easily viewed on the internet. But if you think about it, it's pretty amazing that it all came together with all the variables of that day. He went home to get his camera, which he either forgot or decided not to take. He had film in it. He didn't have to hunt down the local corner drugstore to get the film. His film choice was the best possible for amateur movie makers. His camera performed without error, meaning the exposure. He used the power zoom to its advantage. He was able to keep filming during this time when the majority around him were dropping to the ground for protection. He knew something had happened, and as my mom would say, he kept his faculties. <laughs> Rema he kept his faculties, and he remained filming with only minuscule flinches recorded on the film. It's also amazing that no one stole the camera in the film. One reporter later admitted to, he says, I saw that camera on that filing cabinet. He goes, I could have bullied my way over there, got it, and I could have ran with it, but I didn't. Nobody screwed up the processing. I, I just can't imagine the pressure for that. Some final notes and thoughts on this was Zabruder was at least one of 32 other people at Daily Plaza known to have made film or still photographs on or around the time of the shooting. There is a Polaroid picture where you can see Zabruder in the background. The Zabruder footage 
has earned a place in cinematic history, but its influence actually extends beyond the film role in documenting the Kennedy assassination. It has gained notoriety both as evidence for, like, the Warren Commission and for generation of conspiracy theorists. The Zabruder footage also led us to the viral news videos of the current day. Nowadays, bystanders around the world follow Zabruder's footsteps, capturing breaking news stories with their handheld devices. In addition, the Zabruder film broke through taboos and conventions dictating to what is appropriate for the audience to see. It's said that Hollywood taboos of on-screen violence collapsed in this aftermath of the Zabruder film. Over the next several years, Hollywood directors pushed for greater realism in the depiction of gunshots, and violent encounters. Arthur Penn's movie, Bonnie and Clyde, the 1967 version, Faye Dunaway, Warren Beatty, by coincidence was filmed in and around Dallas, not far from where Zabruder made his movie, changed the rules on what you could show in cinematic shootout. That is pretty, I don't want to say impressive, but if you've watched that film, it's there. I mean, it really is. The following year, Hollywood scrapped the production code they had set for the rules for on-screen violence since the 30s, and they replaced it with uh, our modern rating of P, PG, PG-13, that type of thing. The public's tolerance for violent images had really been changed permanently. We have become desensitized with graphic coverage, and it all started with the graphic coverage of the Kennedy assassination and even the live transmission of the shooting of Lee Harvey Oswald. And this is the tone for journalistic reporting since then, especially it kind of rolled right in to what we, what we had on the nightly news with the Vietnam conflict. Violence was no longer hidden from public view. It's highlighted. It's sensationalized in our culture today. I want you to keep in mind that all of us out here shooting stills, shooting film, you never know when you may record a life-changing event. Just don't say, not me. Thank you, Leslie. Any comments? I mean, one of the things I I kept thinking about is you think about some of the world's greatest events, like our nation's history has been recorded on film. Sure, NASA events Mm -hmm. um, in this case. Yeah, Yeah, it's really amazing, especially in light of uh, today and and what's going on in Ukraine, the fact that every person, regardless of whether you're rich or you're poor, can afford a cell phone that can record video. And it's changing the world starting in the 20th century started just your casual everyday person was starting to record things that previously only a professional news person right you know would have had the gear mm-hmm. so i've got a silly question yeah i thought was a, I, the way the way you were pronouncing it it was is that i what, sometimes I, used abraham well, no, no, sometimes no. Sometimes I used Abraham. I, I see, like the spelling is Zabruder. Yeah, yeah. Zabruder. There's, there's a P, so I was, I was wondering if it was a B or P. Okay. So definitely a P. Okay, that's all right. But your P's pop on these mic. Well, not these mics. I, I think most people call it Zabruder film, but yeah. it's Zapruder film. That's, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I was. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, today folks don't. If you say Zapruder film, you just think everyone knows what the Zapruder film is. <laughs> I asked a teacher; they did not know. How? How? I didn't know it by name. Oh, you didn't? Oh, okay. But well, if you said Kennedy assassination film. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know what's really, really horrible about pop culture? That's not the first thing I think of is the actual film. I think of the, the Seinfeld spoof. Oh. oh. With the magic loogie. Yeah. 
like because they do a really good job <laughs> see, with the reenactment. See, that yeah. was that was talked about in other sources. How it's come down to even that. Mm-hmm. Well, Leslie, thank you very much for the uh, time and effort uh, uh, putting that segment together. Fascinating. That was excellent.